0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome. Our speaker this evening is Josh Parsons. Josh is uh, a lecturer at Oxford. He's uh, based in Corpus Christi College. And his paper tonight is entitled Presupposition, Disagreement, and Predicates of Taste. Josh. Thank you, Sarah. Um, right, so uh, the structure of this paper is. Um, uh, the the written structure of it is slightly different from its argumentative structure. So before I start reading the paper, I think what I might do is just sort of tell you a bit about what to expect and where we're going. So there are three kind of key concepts here I want to um, give little analyses of. Um, One is presupposition, another one is disagreement, and then the final one is the idea of a predicate of taste or a predicate of personal taste as it's often called. Now, um, in order to give you a sense of where all of this is going, I thought I might start by telling you a bit about what I mean by a predicate of personal taste, a predicate of taste, and why we should be interested in them. So a a predicate of taste is a predicate that um, we use to um, express what we might loosely call matters of taste. And the example I'm going to use frequently is the predicate is delicious, but other people have often used other kinds of examples, like um, is funny or is hilarious. Um, sometimes these are these are examples that are designed to be uncontroversial. Of course, some people think that is beautiful is a predicate of taste, but others other people think it isn't. So some people think that the um, the sort of the high-powered Aesthetic properties are mere matters of taste, other people don't think that, but if you did think that they were, then you would want to apply the sort of analysis to them that I'm going to tell you about. (coughs) But I'm going to try and stick to uncontroversial examples. I take it that when we say that something's delicious, we're in some sense saying nothing more than that we like it or all that it it takes for it to be reasonable for me to say that something's delicious is that I like it. But um, this sort of famously gives rise to a bunch of... uh, a big family of problems, and the problems have to do with how and whether it's possible for people to disagree using these predicates. So um, we're going to think a lot about disagreements expressed using the predicate is delicious. For example, if one person says salt licorice is delicious and another person disagrees with them by saying salt licorice isn't delicious. Now what's often said about these sorts of disagreements is that they are no-fault disagreements, that If I say salt licorice is delicious and you say it isn't delicious, we're somehow genuinely disagreeing, but nonetheless, neither of us is at fault because I'm entitled to say what I'm saying. After all, I like salt licorice and you're entitled to say what you're saying because you don't like salt licorice. So it seems like a um, a no-fault disagreement. Now, it turns out, and I'll explain this in more detail later, that um, analyses of predicates of taste and of disagreement that try to capture this idea of a no-fault disagreement frequently run into problems. And the typical problems are either it turns out that the supposed disagreement is not really a disagreement at all, or it turns out that it's not a no-fault disagreement, but a disagreement in which both people are at fault, or, um, and the uh, most up-to-date high-tech theories frequently of of these kinds of things frequently have this problem, or it turns out that it seems as though there's something ad hoc about the notion of disagreement involved. So um, people give... um, People like um, Peter Lazerson and John McFarlane have given these very high-tech theories involving relative truth that try to capture this notion, and what people often say about their theories is that... There's this very complicated and highly crafted notion of disagreement, but it's really kind of ad hoc. All, all the notion of dis- the only motivation for the the concept of disagreement that's being given is that it produces no fault disagreements. You could easily define disagreement in some other way that would seem just as good, but which wouldn't um, deliver the no fault disagreements. Anyway, um, so that's that's what to expect from predicates of taste. Now, the other concepts I'm going to talk about are um, obviously um, the concept of disagreement. Um, Now, um, actually, maybe I'll tell you a bit about um, presupposition first. So the other concepts I'm going to talk about are presupposition and disagreement. So presupposition is this idea that was brought into the philosophical literature by um, Peter Strawson, um, and... I'm going to treat Strawson's notion of presupposition as more or less interchangeable with another concept that's well known in um, philosophy of language, which is Grice's concept of conventional implicature. I'll explain what I mean by those in a minute. Um, The sort of treatment of them that I'm giving is not that much like what I think either Strawson or Grice would have wanted, but it's a bit more like Strawson. So that's why I'm calling it presupposition. So I'm going to offer an analysis of presupposition um, using a form of non-classical logic, and then I'm going to use that to motivate a definition of disagreement. because remember one of the problems about predicates of taste was that in some people's analyses the motivation the, the definition of disagreement seems ad hoc. And then I'll show I'll give an analysis of predicates of taste, which spits out the result that there can be no fault disagreements just where we want them. Okay, so that's what to expect. Okay, now into the paper itself. Right. So let's have a look at uh, have a think about um, presupposition. So on the handout there, I've got a whole bunch of examples of cases of um, presupposition. So here's the sort. The first one is the sort of thing that Strawson had in mind. So. Um, Uh, here's um, a uh, case of a definite description the king of France is bald now famously Bertrand Russell claimed that um, this sentence is just false because there's no king of France and Strawson complained in reply to Russell that that shouldn't be quite right that shouldn't be right there's something worse than false about it it's um, neither true nor false Strawson thought and he Explain this a bit further by saying that it doesn't, um, the King of France's will doesn't imply that there's a King of France, it presupposes that there's a King of France. And when you have a failed presupposition, the sentence doesn't even get to be a candidate to be true or false. And the idea here is that um, in this case, the idea is that. Um, because there's no king of France, there's nothing being said to be bald. So there's it's the uh, it's not the sentence isn't either succeeding in, or failing in. Uh, it's not getting getting it right or getting it wrong. So that's just one example. I mean, I'm I'm not I don't want to be wedded to these examples. I'm giving you a, a, a broad diet of examples because these examples are all controversial in their own way. And I want to sort of give some examples that I hope will be compelling. One example should be compelling to at least each person, hopefully, even if you don't all like all of them. Second example. So this is a uh, a kind of classic case of another classic case of presupposition. Josh has stopped blackmailing the vice chancellor. So there's something funny about the word stopped. Um... This sort of case is often discussed in relation to questions. If you ask me, have you stopped blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor? I can't say yes, because that would be accepting that, um, though I wasn't blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor now, I had at one time blackmailed him. And if I say um, no, then that's accepting not only that I was at one time blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor, but that I still am. So you can't answer the question, have you stopped blackmailing the vice chancellor with either yes or no? And for similar reasons, people often think the sentence Josh has stopped blackmailing the vice chancellor can't be either true or false because if it's true, then I was at some time blackmailing the vice chancellor. If it's false, then I um, uh, was at some time and still am. So it's neither true nor false, and this is and this is often summed up by saying, well it presupposes this sentence has a presupposition that I was blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor at some time, it's, and because I wasn't, the sentence too is a case of presupposition failure. It has a false presupposition, and so it's neither true nor false. Third example, this one's slightly more exotic. Um, so this is inten- example three. Carla's Bosch is intended to, be a, um, uh, intended to be an example of a piece of um, uh, derogatory language. So the example I've taken from, um, from Dummett, who discusses this sort of example, the idea is that Bosch is a now um, obsolete, racist, derogatory word against... racist against Germans. And the connotation of this particular piece of derogatory language is that all Germans are cruel. And though I'm not a native user of the word Bosch myself, the very few people are, I think... Um, I think we're all familiar with this kind of language and the way it operates. And one thing that's distinctive about it is that um, if you know one of these words, you know what it means to say that someone is Bosch as it might be is just to say that they're German, but to say that is also to sort of go along with the racist implications. But the other very distinctive thing is that even to deny... That someone is Bosch is to go along with the racist implications. And if you doubt that, I encourage you to think about a more current um, piece of uh, derogatory language of your choosing. So, this also seems to fit the pattern of presupposition, though um, Dummett had a very different analysis of derogatory language. I'm offering you an analysis here by sort of unifying it with these cases of. Um, stopped and so on. And the idea is that Carlos Bosch implies that Carlos is German but presupposes all Germans are cruel. And I've got a few more examples there. Um, so, um, uh, my, uh, just again, just I want to spread my examples far and wide because I want everyone on board. Um, another example is Hannah is a New Zealander but she's a big rugby fan. So, um, in, a, uh, in your first book, first year logic textbook, it'll tell you that the word but is equivalent to and. Um, now, clearly, it's not used exactly the same way as and. A standard treatment of the word but, and this is, this is from Grice, is that the truth conditions according to Grice of a sentence like that are the same as the truth conditions of a sentence with um, the word and in the place of but. But there's also what Grice calls a conventional implicature that there's some contrast between the two sides of the conjunction. So if we sort of transpose this into this talk of presupposition, um, that sentence "Hannah is a New Zealander, but she's a big rugby fan" implies that Hannah is a New Zealander and that she's a big rugby fan. But it presupposes that there's some contrast between being a New Zealander and a rugby fan. And of course, this as I'm sure you're all aware, would be a um, case of a failed presupposition. Tom realised that he was missing the lecture. Um, So um, that's my other example. So it's clear that um, this is factive, um, that Tom can't realise that he was missing the lecture unless he was actually missing the lecture. It's a common example of a factive verb. But if you think about it, um, it's not just factive, but it's kind of presuppositionally factive as well, because Tom didn't realise that he was missing the lecture, also presupposes that Tom was missing the lecture. And similarly to the stopped case, if I say, Tom, do you realise you're missing the lecture? He can't say, if, and he's in the lecture. If he says yes, he's going along with the idea that he's missing the lecture. If he says no, he also goes along with that. So it's another case of presupposition. <laughs> Sixth example, it was Josh who ate all the Christmas cake, as one of my colleagues might have had occasion to say in December. So again, um, uh, this implies that I ate all the Christmas cake, but it presupposes that someone ate all the Christmas cake, because if someone says um, it wasn't Josh who ate all the Christmas cake, that still supposes, that still implies that someone did. Okay. Right, so there's a lot of examples. Now, just to sort of remind you of some of the things that are supposed to be true of all of these things, so we've got this suggestion from Strawson, Um, not everyone accepts this, but I'm going to go along with Strawson on this, that when you have a failed presupposition, you have a sentence, the sentence is neither true nor false. So that's one mark of a presupposition. Um, Second mark of a presupposition... When you have a presupposition, both a sentence and its negation entail that presupposition. So, um, uh, Josh has stopped blackmailing the vice-chancellor entails its presupposition, but so does it is not the case that Josh has stopped blackmailing the vice-chancellor. That entails the very same presupposition. So we've got two marks of a presupposition here. There's the neither true nor false phenomenon, and there's the both a sentence and its negation entail phenomenon. Now, um, another thing that I'll sort of briefly, another phenomenon that I want to distinguish presupposition from um, is what's sometimes called pragmatic presupposition or conversational implicature in the Gricean terminology, um, which is supposed to be different. Um, So one thing that marks the kinds of presuppositions I'm talking about here is that There's something about the meanings of the words that generates the um, the presupposition. It's not just something that you can work out from the fact from from the kind of conversation you're having. So there's something special about um, in my examples definite descriptions, the word stopped, the word bosh, the word but, the word realized, and the construction it was so and so who that something about the semantics of those that generates the presuppositions. It's not just that you can sort of work out from, um, uh, it, these aren't cases like the case where the uh, letter of reference says um, he has very good handwriting and you can work out from the fact that this is very, very faint praise that actually the person who said that means to be dissing the, uh, the person they're writing about. Okay. Right, okay, so that's a bit of background about presupposition. Now I'll tell you about how my sort of the theory of presupposition I want to sponsor. So, okay. Now, so remember those two things I mentioned about presupposition, marks of presupposition, so that they're neither true nor false, and both the sentence and its negation entail the presupposition. Now, if we think of those ideas as literally correct and there's a sense in which Strawson didn't, then we'll have to have a non-classical logic. So if we think of the... I think Strawson probably thought that when a sentence has a failed presupposition, it's somehow not truth evaluable. But what I want us to think is... Let's think of sentences with failed presuppositions as truth or valuable, but neither true nor false. And also, let's think of them as um, logically entailing their presuppositions, and the negation of a sentence as logically entailing its presuppositions as well. Now, for that to be the case, we're going to have to have a non-classical logic, because in classical logic, every sentence that's truth evaluable is either true or false, And you can't um, have a sentence and its negation entail something unless that something is a tautology. That can't happen in classical logic. So we're going to have to have a non-classical logic. And fortunately, I happen to have one right here in my back pocket. It's a logic called um, FDE, or first degree entailment. It was devised by Newell Belknap. Now, you don't need to know much about it. Um, it's um, it's very very simple and there's this particularly nice um, semantics for um, FDE that was given by Mike Dunn, um, which is on the handout there. Now I should warn you there's a type out typo in the definition of disjunction there. So the definition of phi or psi, the and and or are misplaced. So if you look at those, it, it's very obvious that uh, there's a mistake there. So. The thing to to think about about um, this logic is what it does is it lets us treat truth and falsity more or less independently. So we're going to, when we say what the truth conditions of a sentence are, we're going to give one line that gives the truth conditions, and another line, which could be completely different, gives the falsity conditions. And this makes it very easy for there to be truth gaps which is what we need. We want some sentences to be neither true nor false. And the way I encourage you to think about this, which is consistent with Dunn's semantics, is that when a sentence is neither true nor false, neither its truth condition nor its falsity condition is satisfied. And that's possible because the truth and falsity conditions are more or less independent. Now, what the, um, the things that are given on the handout under Dunn's semantics there do, they're just little... Um, uh, <coughs> truth functional definitions of and and or and not and I say on the handout that they're very intuitive and the reason why that is is if you just sort of forget that um, truth and falsity are kind of independent in this view If if you confine yourself to sentences that don't have any presuppositions or any funny stuff going on these definitions just agree with classical logic Now, if you sort of read them out to yourself and you forget that the truth and falsity conditions are independent, they'll just sound like classical logic. They should sound very familiar. And then finally, the other thing that's very familiar and that's very elegant about this um, semantics is entailment, is truth preservation. That's, again, just the same as classical logic. One sentence entails another. If it can't be, that the first sentence is true and the second one fails to be true. Now it's important that I say fails to be true here because that's different from saying is false. So it's truth preservation that we care about. We don't care about falsity for purposes of entailment. Okay, now how are we going to um, apply this to the idea of presuppositions? So so the idea then is we want sentences that can have presuppositions to be capable of being neither true nor false, And this is going to be because both their truth conditions and their falsity conditions fail to be satisfied. Then they're neither true nor false. And I've given some examples there. So if you look at um, the example of the king of France is bald, what we want is for that to be um, uh, neither true nor false, just if there's no king of France, or more than one king of France for that matter. So the um, truth and falsity conditions I've given there deliver that. It's true if there's exactly one king of France and every king of France is bald. And so we see that um, we can say that Russell was right about the truth conditions of the king of France is bald, but it's false if there's exactly one king of France and some king of France is not bald. And that's what, on this reconstruction, Strawson should have said in rejoinder, Strawson should have said, Russell, you're right about the truth conditions of this sentence, wrong about the falsity conditions. So that delivers the result that if there's fewer than one or more than one king of France, this sentence is neither true nor false. If there's exactly one king of France, then whether it's true or false, it's going to be either true or false, and it'll depend on whether that person is bald. Similarly, um, for uh, Josh has stopped blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor. That's going to be true if Josh was blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor and now he's not. And false if Josh was blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor and he still is. If I was never blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor, of course, neither of those conditions are satisfied. It's neither true nor false. It has a failed presupposition. Similarly, for Carlos Bosch, That's true if Karl is German and all Germans are cruel. It's false if Karl is not German and all Germans are cruel. And since there are some non-cruel Germans, it's neither true nor false. Both of those conditions fail. Okay. Now, so there's a little story about how these things with presuppositions can fail to be the true or false. Now, it's rather nice. Here's a nice and a surprising and beautiful feature of this theory so far, is that a definition of presupposition which matches exactly the idea that we got from Strawson at the start, drops right out of the semantics. We can now adequately define presupposes in the way given on the handout. Phi presupposes psi if phi entails psi, and the negation of phi also entails psi. Right? So if you look at the King of France is bald, that presupposes there is exactly one King of France because. Um, uh, actually, the easiest way to see this, by the way, here's an easy way to see this. Notice what negation does to the truth conditions of a sentence. It swaps them. Right? So the negation of the King of France is bald is going to be. False, just if the original sentence is true, true just if the original sentence is false. Right. Now, um, what if... So when we say that, when we use the definition of presupposes that I've given, given what I've said about entailment, the presuppositions of a sentence are going to be those things that follow from both the truth conditions and the falsity conditions. And it's easy to see by looking at the truth and falsity conditions as I've set them up for these examples, what that'll be. So the King of France is bald will presuppose there is exactly one King of France, which is just what we wanted. Similarly, Josh has stopped blackmailing the vice-chancellor, will presuppose Josh was blackmailing the vice-chancellor, and Carlos Bosch will presuppose all Germans are cruel. So this very simple definition of presupposes, which was already motivated by our reflection on the um, concept of presupposition, turns out to be right, given the FDE semantics, which was motivated by something else, which was motivated motivated by the idea of putting the truth gaps where they should go on the sentences that have false presuppositions. Okay, so that's all I have to say about presupposition. There's there's this, I've got this little analysis of presupposition there, um, uh, we've, I sort of started with a, whole, uh, with a swarm of examples I gave you this picture of using a non-classical logic of presupposition it has all sorts of nice features I hope you're willing to go along with it for now okay. now what I want to do is talk about disagreement so I have a particular analysis of disagreement to give now just, just to sort of orient us again um, remember um, what I'm after is trying to explain no-fault disagreements. And one of the pitfalls that I'm afraid of falling into is the pitfall that I think people like Lazerson fall into of giving an account of no-fault disagreements where the concept of disagreement that's used is ad hoc. So what I want to do is tell a story about what disagreement is that fits with the analysis of presupposition I've just given so far, nothing to do with predicates of taste. Okay? So I want to give an analysis of, presupposition, of, of, um, of disagreement that fits with what I've just said about presupposition. And to do that, I suggest we think about what happens when people disagree but share a false presupposition. So I have an example on the handout there of two English jingoists you are to think about Kitchener and Fanshawe, and they're disagreeing about a third party called Karl. And what's going on is that... um, uh, Let's say that Karl is, in fact, a very gentle German. Kitchener and Fanshawe are both racists and are committed to the belief that all Germans are cruel. But what they can't decide, what they're arguing over is whether Karl is German. So Kitchener thinks that Karl is German and Fanshawe thinks he isn't. And their debate, uh, this is a very short debate, goes like this, Kitchener says, Karl is bosh. And Fanshawe says, Karl is jolly well not bosh. Right, so what's going on here? Now, both Kitchener and Fanshawe are sincere So they each believe that what they are saying is true, they both believe that all Germans are cruel, but they're mistaken about that, in fact Carl is German and Carl is not cruel. So both Kitchener's and Fanshawe's utterances on my analysis are neither true nor false. So that shows that you can be, two people can be disagreeing even though both of their utterances have the same truth value on this theory. Now, not only are Kitchener disagreeing, they're disagreeing in a particularly narrow sense that I want to, um, that I want to clarify. Um, they're, they're involved in what I'll call a normal disagreement. And what I mean by that is that their disagreement is, about the, is concerns the implications of what they're saying. It's not the kind of disagreement... Um, that would take place between someone who says that I've stopped blackmailing the vice-chancellor and me who wants to protest that I've never blackmailed the vice-chancellor. That, that would be a, a non-normal disagreement. This is a normal disagreement between two people who agree on the presuppositions of what they're saying. Now, a very good, um, a clear way of saying that, saying what that is, Uh, what it takes for someone to be involved in a normal disagreement is that um, they're saying that what the other said is false, right? So what Kitchener means to be saying about Fanshawe's utterance is that it is false, not that it's untrue, because Kitchener means to be buying into the presupposition that all Germans are cruel and disputing the claim that Karl isn't German, Fanshawe likewise means to be buying into the claim that all Germans are cruel and disputing whether Karl is German. Right? So that is to say that what Kitchener means to be saying is something that entails the what Fanshawe says is false and vice versa. So we can use that to analyse... This concept of a normal disagreement. So we'll say that two sentences, ex- two sentences phi and psi, this is on the handout, express a normal disagreement if phi entails that psi is false, and psi entails that phi is false. And then we'll extend this definition to people in a disagreement. Two people normally disagree with each other if they sincerely utter sentences that express a normal disagreement in this sense. Now, when two people normally disagree, one or both of them may be at fault. Speaking falsely in a normal disagreement is sufficient for being at fault in, this, in a disagreement. So if there's no presuppositions going on, then um, you know, suppose the disagreement was over whether Karl is German. If you say Karl is German and I say no, he's not, at least one of us has to be speaking falsely and that person is at fault in the disagreement. Um, but, so speaking falsely is sufficient for being at fault but it's not necessary because in the disagreement between Kitchener and Fanshawe Fanshawe at least is at fault because he's mistaken over whether um, uh, Karl is German and he's not speaking falsely but neither true nor falsely so we should say that what it takes to be at fault in a normal disagreement is to speak untruly not to speak falsely So by that standard, Fanshawe and Kitchener are both at fault in the disagreement over Karl's status. And that seems right as both are mistaken in holding that all Germans are cruel. Now, this should hold in disagreements over whether or not the King of France is bald, whether I've stopped blackmailing the Vice-Chancellor, and so on. Suppose that I've never blackmailed the Vice-Chancellor Then, if Ursula says I've stopped and Martin says I haven't, both are in a normal disagreement and both are at fault, just like Kitchener and Fanshawe. Suppose, on the other hand, that I have been and am continuing to blackmail the Vice Chancellor, then Ursula and Martin would be in a normal disagreement and Ursula, but not Martin, would be at fault. Okay, so there we have a little analysis of disagreement an analysis of what it takes to be at fault in a disagreement, and it's motivated by this concept of presupposition. Now on to predicates of taste. Okay. So consider the sentence for salt licorice is delicious. So I already mentioned that is delicious is supposed to be a predicate of taste. And on the handout there, there's a sort of a little sample of different theories about predicates of taste, all of which have their own problems. So um, uh, let's call um, objectivism about predicates of taste um, seems most people when they hear this stuff, uh, certainly most, almost all non-philosophers when they hear this think that objectivism is completely barking mad. Um, But what tends to happen is the more you think about predicates of taste, the more tempting objectivism seems. Um, but objectivism is the view that a predicate like is delicious is exactly what it seems like. It expresses something like a property of being objectively to be liked in a gastronomic manner. Right. So uh, according to objectivism, four ascribes the property of being objectively to be liked, to salt. Now I don't have much to say about objectivism except that it suffers from an obvious objection, um, which is Mackey's argument from queerness. A lot of people think that um, the property of being objectively to be liked um, is metaphysically, both metaphysically and epistemically objectionable, that um, there couldn't possibly be such a property, and that if, um, contrary to all sanity, there were, we wouldn't be in any position to know whether salt licorice had it. Um, and so on. Now, it's worth noticing, though, that objectivism has a rather more attractive variant, which is also due to Mackey, which is Mackey's error theory. And I think a lot of philosophers, when after they think through this stuff, start to get tempted by this. This is the view that actually nothing is delicious. Because um, objectivism is true as a matter of analysis, but in fact, all Mackey's criticisms of it are correct. So there's no such thing as the property of being delicious, um, but, and salt, saying that salt licorice is delicious is a way of um, ascribing that property, but there is no such property, so it's false. Just sort of have that at the, you know, have that at the back of your mind if you're an aficionado for this stuff. Everything that I'm gonna, I'm just gonna assume that objectivism's not on the table here. What I'm really interested in is um, comparing a theory that I'm gonna develop in a minute to other kinds of anti-objectivist positions. Okay, so next theory. Subjectivism in its simplest form is the view that sentences like "for" are self-reports. So four is equivalent to something like, um, I um, like salt licorice in a gastronomic sort of way. Um, and we could instead put that in terms of truth conditions. We could say that "what salt salt licorice is delicious, as uttered by a speaker. S is true, just if S likes salt licorice in a gastronomic way. Now, this certainly... um, This is a theory that attracts many people when they first think about it because it seems to sort of get the deflationary nature of deliciousness right but it has a famous problem that's um, very well known which is the problem of disagreement so we're trying to capture the sense in which there can be no fault disagreements right concerning deliciousness if I say salt licorice is delicious and you say no it's not we're both just as right in some sense to say that but according to subjectivism not only are we just as right we're not even disagreeing when I say, salt licorice is delicious, I'm just, saying that, I'm just saying I like it. So when I say, if you don't like salt licorice, and I say, salt licorice is delicious, why don't you say, I agree? Right? If subjectivism were correct, then you wouldn't disagree with me. But that doesn't seem to be the way things work. When we do have conversations using words like this, if I say, salt licorice is delicious, that somehow, you know, you and you don't like it, then s- somehow you're you're being insincere if you let that pass. Right? Okay, so subjectivism has this problem that it abolishes the disagreement. Right. Okay, here's a next step analysis, and this is This view is also kind of known in the literature. We're sort of getting increasingly sophisticated views here. So you might think that maybe presupposition can help. Perhaps what we should say is that salt licorice is delicious implies that the speaker likes salt licorice. So the subjectivist is right about the truth conditions, just the way Russell was right about the truth conditions of sentences involving um, definite descriptions it wrong about the falsity conditions so it implies that salt licorice, um, it, it implies that the speaker likes salt licorice but presupposes that everyone else does as well or presupposes that everyone agrees on whether salt licorice is likeable now um, so I've given a, a suggested analysis of this in terms of my analysis of presupposition on the handout there so um, we'll sugge- I suggest one way of capturing this is to say the truth conditions of salt licorice is delicious as uttered in context C. But it's true if everyone in C likes salt licorice and it's false if everyone in C doesn't like salt licorice. Now that means that if, um, if I like salt licorice and you don't then this sentence has a false presupposition. And that sort of matches the idea that when I say um, salt licorice is delicious, I'm implying that I like it, but presupposing that um, there's going to be agreement. OK, this seems, this seems all right. Um, so now um, consider the type of... Um, this seems an advance over subjectivism. Now consider the type of conversation we had that caused problems for subjectivism. This is the conversation where one person says salt licorice is delicious and another one objects by saying no, it's not. Well, on this analysis, there's a disagreement going on between those people. It's a normal disagreement. So think back to my analysis of disagreement. It's just like the disagreement between between Kitchener and Fanshawe. So it's a normal disagreement. Both are speaking neither truly nor falsely. But we agreed that in the Kitchener-Fanshaw disagreement, it was a double-fault disagreement. Both people are at fault. And that's not quite what we wanted. We wanted a no-fault disagreement. Now you might say, well, okay, you know, as long as the fault is symmetrical, as long as no one's more at fault than anyone else, that'll do. But consider... This theory, this, this theory at, on those standards is doing no better than the um, error theory. So the error theory holds that um, when I say salt licorice is delicious and you say salt licorice isn't delicious, we're both speaking falsely because we're both committing ourselves to a non-natural property of deliciousness. So it's a double fault disagreement. So presuppositionalism is not doing any better at making sense of disagreement concerning predicates of taste than is the error theory, which is much more low-tech. OK. Right, so a bit of uh, demolishing of um, various positions. Now, what I want to do is now is suggest a way in which using, all the resor- using just the resources we already have, we can make sense of no-fault disagreements. Okay. So if you think back to the concept of presupposition, I said that when you have a presupposition, if you have a sentence and its presupposition, both that sentence and its negation entail the presupposition. Now, let's think about the converse kind of entailment. If you can have both a sentence and its negation entailing something, can't you have something that entails both a sentence and its negation. Now, to coin a phrase, I'll call that an anti-supposition. So this is like the... the it's a kind of... It's a it's a dual notion to um, presupposition. Within our truth-conditional semantics, within the, the Dunn semantics I've suggested, anti-supposition behaves in an entirely parallel way to presupposition. So just as... If a sentence has a false presupposition, then it is neither true nor false. Just as that's the case, if a sentence has a true anti-supposition, it's both true and false. And it's possible for sentences to be both true and false in Dunn semantics because the truth and falsity conditions are independent. Sentences whose truth and falsity conditions do not exhaust the possible states of the world between them are capable of being neither true nor false. They have a gap between the truth and falsity conditions. They have non-trivial presuppositions. Sentences whose truth and falsity conditions overlap, sentences whose truth and falsity conditions include circumstances where both sets of conditions are satisfied, are capable of being both true and false, and they have consistent anti-suppositions. So let's take an example. Suppose that we gave the truth and falsity conditions of salt licorice is delicious in the way suggested on the handout. Salt licorice is delicious as uttered in conversational context C is true if someone in C likes salt licorice and false if someone in C does not like salt licorice. So note the resemblance between that and the presuppositionalist's um, analysis, the, the presuppositionalist's truth conditions. So where the presuppositionalist left a gap between the truth and falsity conditions, this one creates an overlap between them because it could be that someone likes salt licorice and someone doesn't. Okay. Now consider the conversation between the two people who are disagreeing over whether salt licorice is delicious. Since someone in that conversation, namely me, likes salt licorice and someone else doesn't, namely you we are both speaking truly. And so neither of us is at fault, because remember, to be at fault was to speak untruly. But we're in a normal disagreement in the very sense in which we defined that earlier, because if what I say is true, then what you say is false, and vice versa, as you can see from the truth and falsity conditions. So just to make that a bit clearer, on the handout there I've put the truth and falsity conditions of it It is not the case that salt licorice is delicious. So recall that what um, the what negation does is just swaps truth and falsity over. So um, <clears throat> you can see that salt licorice is delicious. That entails that its negation is false. So what I'm saying entails that what you're saying is false, because um, uh, entailment is. Um, uh, uh, entailment is some, um, recall, preservation of truth, and what you're saying entails that what I'm saying is false. So we are normally disagreeing, and neither is at fault, given the analysis of disagreement and at fault. And remember that that analysis was not ad hoc. It was developed to fit presuppositions. So my proposal here is a variant on presuppositionalism, which we may call anti-suppositionalism. Salt licorice is delicious, does not presuppose that there is agreement over a gastronomic liking for salt licorice. It doesn't presuppose that everyone, either everyone likes or everyone does not like it. Instead, it anti-supposes that there is disagreement. It anti-supposes that someone likes and someone else does not like salt licorice. I suggest that we think of a true anti-supposition as a kind of failure, a kind of pragmatic failure, analogous to having a false presupposition, with the exception, the only difference between a true anti-supposition and a false presupposition, is that someone who utters a sentence with a true anti-supposition speaks truly and is not at fault. It's useful to think of presupposition in relation to questions. If someone asks, has Josh stopped blackmailing the vice-chancellor, and I haven't blackmailed anyone, then the question is kind of pointless because no answer can be correct. In a parallel fashion, if someone asks, is salt licorice delicious in mixed company, then the question is pointless because any answer would be correct. We try to avoid false or controversial presuppositions in conversations, and we try to avoid false, sorry, true or controversial anti-suppositions. Now, I'm more could be said about the role of anti-supposition and conversational dynamics, but I'm not going to try to say that here. My point here is to just open a unjustly neglected option for understanding predicates of taste that allows for no fault disagreements. So just to sort of remind you what I've tried to achieve here, I, I so um, it's um, what I I think is I'm I'm not complete. I personally am not completely wedded to the idea of presupposition, but I think that if you want to have no false disagreements, this is the most elegant way to do it it's certainly I think it's certainly better than the um, the rival views now let me just say one more thing um, so um, one more thing about what's going on here uh, one, or, or one more thing about um, uh, the the, the s- uh, this, uh, that may help shield me from stares of incredulity. So um, uh, this theory embraces a f- not just paraconsistency, but what's often called dialetheism, the view that some sentences are both true and false. Now let's call those sentences dialethea. So a dialetheon is a sentence that is both true and false or, equivalently, a true sentence whose negation is also true. On this view, sentences involving predicates of taste may be dialetheia. Now, dialetheism often excites stares of incredulity from philosophers. It sometimes invites stares of incredulity from me, even, some of its applications. Now, I have three replies to these stares. So, first, this proposal involves a very tame form of dialetheism, and there are certainly some wild ones out there. The respect in which it's tame is that we're only supposing that certain special sentences of natural language may be both true and false. And we can explain what that amounts to in a meta-language that contains no dialetheia. In contrast, the sort of the scary dialetheists think it's dialetheia all the way down. Graham Priest, for example, thinks that sort of thing. Second, the leading rival explanation of the same phenomena, which I haven't talked much about, is um, truth relativism. Um, that's the view that um, uh, sentences like four can be true for me and false for you. And that doesn't just mean that subjectivism is true. It means that the proposition, we, that we express the very same proposition by salt licorice is delicious, but somehow there's, you know, there's no absolute truth. You need a person to come along. To, um, to tell you, to give you um, a truth value for these sentences. So there, there's a very, the, the, the main rival view here is truth relativism. And, well, um, that's not any less weird or controversial than dialetheism. Third, um, it's kind of handy to dress up this type of theory in dialetheic um, language, but actually you can get rid of all the dialetheia just by rephrasing it. Simply rename what I called falsehood with some neologism. Call it anti-truth. If you go through everything I've said, and wherever I said false, just say anti-true, you'll see that you know, FDE still works exactly the same way. The definitions of the extensional logical connectives still sound just as plausible. Entailment doesn't talk about anti-truth it just talks about truth so that all still sounds okay but now we have a um, n- and uh, now and oh and rename what I called untruth falsehood so now we have a theory on which um, which works is structurally just like what I said but it, it contains neither truth gaps nor dialetheia. so I think that's it thank you